Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, Indivisible co-founders and co-executive directors Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin. They have just released their new book, We Are Indivisible, a blueprint for democracy after Trump. And they join us in person for a wide-ranging discussion about, among other things, what we have learned since the founding of Indivisible, about our wins and losses since then, and about how both have been instructive. And they talk about their reasons for writing their game changing Google Doc after the 2016 election. We were not writing a guide to reassure people that things were going to be okay just because things were always okay. We were writing the guide to tell people they had power. That is all ahead, so stay with us. As most of you listening know, Indivisible co-founders Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin have recently written a book. It is called We Are Indivisible, A Blueprint for Democracy After Trump. Ezra has joined us on the show numerous times before, but this is the first time in person. And then I'm very excited that Leah is here as well. So uh, welcome, you guys. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. I should just also mention that we're uh, together in Seattle and you're on book tour. Um, How's the book tour going? It's great. It's great. It's been an awesome opportunity to check in with Indivisibles in every city that we go to and to get some new folks excited about the book and about the movement as well. You guys got a shout out from uh, Hillary Clinton on Twitter about the book. That's right. We, you know, one of the cool things about this is, you know, one of the reasons to write a book is because it's a useful hook to get more attention from lots of different corners of the country, lots of different places where you uh, uh, haven't had people talking about Indivisible. And yeah, Hillary Clinton gave a great little shout out of the book. And she's actually been supportive since pretty early on. I remember she called us sometime in early 2017 asking how she could be helpful. Um, uh, so yeah, no, it's been, it's been a really good experience. We were in DC then we were in New York, then we were in San Francisco. Now we're in Seattle. We go to Dallas next and then DC again and then Boston and that's the tour. And then actually the day after the tour is done, obviously we're not hitting every city in the country. We're going to kick off a virtual book club event. So we'll, no kidding. We'll be discussing individual chapters with whoever wants to. And hopefully a lot of the individual groups who aren't in the cities where we're going can join for that. That is really exciting. So mm-hmm. I will make sure to keep people abreast of that. So I want to talk about the book. But yeah. Before we do, I want to get uh, I want to give people a sense of your backgrounds, because I don't know if people really know that much about why you are in politics and yeah. how, how the, all of this sprung up. Uh, I know you were both poli sci majors, uh, your former congressional staffers. Was it always your plan to go into politics? Um, pretty much, actually. Um, yeah. So I'm an inside the Beltway kid. I grew up um, working on campaigns. I, I think I did my first political campaign when I was um, 14. And oh, wow. it was, I remember I walked into the congressional, or the, it was a campaign for Congress, walked in and I was put to work um, signing the con- the would-be congressperson's name to thank you cards. And I was like, oh, this is like the West Wing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, um, and you know, over the years I went more in the direction of human rights. Um, I yeah. spent most of my career actually at the intersection of policy, advocacy, and human trafficking. Um, so did that in, uh, on outside of the Hill, working with the coalition of nonprofits that were working on human trafficking, and then at the State Department in their Office of Trafficking and Persons. Yeah, I know you have a deep background in, mm-hmm. well, deep background sounds like you worked in intelligence, but no, it's, you, have a, you have a deep background in uh, in the nonprofit world. I, I want to ask about that in just a second, but Ezra, I will ask you about your upbringing. You grew up in Texas, very red, That's right. but it was a suburb of Austin, which is very blue. So how mm-hmm. did that impact your 
politics at growing the time, up? Yeah, at the time, it, was, it wasn't even the summer. We grew up in uh, outside the city limits of Buda, Texas, which is this tiny little town. And now Austin has just expanded so much in the past couple decades that it's yeah. practically become a suburb. My parents were, were uh, very much so uh, progressives, were lefties, but they weren't very politically active, I would say, at least not during my upbringing. We would talk about politics at the kitchen table and stuff, but that was about it. Um, my whole family's in the music business. That's where they came from. Oh, my, no kidding. My my dad quit a PhD program in philosophy to join a rock and roll band and then toured the country. Like and you my do. mom on the road. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they settled in Austin, which was the live music capital of the world. Sure. It is. It's a great music town. So I have no musical talent. So that's why I went into politics. But the rest of my family is in that business. Were there particular people who inspired you growing up to get into politics? Well, I remember actually right after the 2016 election, we were uh, reading a lot of old Paul Wellstone speeches. Uh, uh, we both went to Carleton College uh, in Minnesota, where Paul Wellstone taught, and he was a you know great inspiring figure that said a whole bunch of things. That, yeah. uh, among other things, I'm I'm part of the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party, and we all do better when we all do better. Um, so that what one figure comes to mind for you, Leah? Oh, it was absolutely Paul Wellstone. I remember yeah. being really inspired by him while he was in the Senate, um, having this crisis of faith almost when um, he and his, his wife and child, um, children died on the um, flight yeah. uh, in the in the 20, 2004 campaign, or sorry, 2002 campaign, um, but really trying to carry on his legacy. Well, yeah, I, it was just an extraordinarily devastating moment, I think, across the, the, the political world, particularly on our side of the of the aisle. And as you mentioned, you got into the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. You both were kind of on a career path as staffers. And then uh, in 2011, you decided to quit that. And you, I should mm-hmm. mention you were married at the time. So I guess you made this decision together. <laughs> um, right. Why the shift to go to graduate school and get into the nonprofit sector? Well, I think I I tend to see all of these things as pretty interlinked because fundamentally it's a bunch of different levers of power influencing each other. So I started on the outside working with anti-trafficking groups. I went to the Hill. I went back, um, you know, semi on the outside um, and then back into the State Department. It's really kind of a whole set of different places where you're better at any individual thing if you understand the way that you're you're better at your human trafficking, obviously, if you know how the Hill works. You're better at uh, your State Department work if you know how the Hill works. You're better at your Hill work if you know how everything else works. (laughs) <laughs> was it similar uh, for you in yeah, terms of motivation? That's somewhat, it's a somewhat common path within D.C. So there's mm-hmm. this nonprofit industrial complex within D.C. where there are think tanks or advocacy groups or others, and then there's Capitol Hill and the White House. And what you'll see is people will often rotate between these things. Sometimes people rotate between Capitol Hill and their big high-paid lobbying groups, but there are also people who rotate between Capitol Hill, the White House, and, um, and the nonprofit advocacy space. So mm-hmm. going from Capitol Hill to... Uh, to graduate school, which we both did at the same time, was a natural step in that progression. We were cogs within that broader machine of trying to do good, trying to work on any poverty issues in my case or any human trafficking issues in in Leah's case. Um, But one way to dive deeper into what I was working on was poverty issues was to go get a master's in public policy and and focus in on how do you form the best policy. And that's what I did. So we went to grad school. I focused on that in grad school and then came back and immediately joined an anti-poverty nonprofit doing advocacy at the national level. So I want to talk about the book, um, and I, I would love to start with the experiences that you describe on the the very just painful night of uh, election night 2016. You want to start there? I, well, <laughs> everybody has horror stories, yeah, yeah. but I think yours are particularly instructive because of what it led to. Yeah. Um, can yeah. you just kind of give us an idea of of how that night went down for you guys? <laughs> sure. So we had uh, we'd gone up to Philadelphia the week before. We'd organized a team of about a, a dozen folks to come with us to knock doors for the Clinton campaign. 
Um, had a pretty good weekend knocking doors um, all over the place. I beat my Fitbit count. Um, and then <laughs> we uh, had a thanks, the thank you party for everyone um, when we got back to D.C. And, you know, it was one of those parties where the mood started out where uh, celebratory and we were kind of like, you know, but we might not take the Senate. And then right. <laughs> pretty quickly uh, in the course of the night, it became clear that was not the biggest problem that we faced. Yeah. And, you know, things went downhill. Um, it was really uh, it was it was grim. Um, you know, people started arguing about Hillary versus Bernie. Uh, it was it was not a good night for anyone. You guys actually went to bed while all that arguing yeah. was happening. Yes. Yeah. You <laughs> tired of it. Yeah. We still have people who like won't come back to our house because it's the place where <laughs> <laughs> they just consider it a bad, uh, yeah. A bad omen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned the fact that you had the champagne. I should mention that we had a bottle of champagne <laughs> that we did not open that night. We actually opened it on the night of the Blue Wave. Ah, so, yes. so we held it for that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so you also talk about in the book what D.C. was like. Yeah. You were both living there. What was it like? Give us a sense of what it was like after the election. People were so stunned. Um, yeah. I mean, I remember going to work that morning and the metro was just silent and I'd yeah. never seen that before. And in all of our offices, so we each were working in places that were progressive, but, you know, part of the D.C. infrastructure and across our communities, people were sort of just grasping for answers. And there were kind of two clear camps, right? There was a camp of like, OK, well, we survived Reagan. We'll survive this. You know, we got to just go along to get along. Um, elect. This is what happens. We lose elections sometimes. And then there was this camp of like, this is very, very dangerous. We are in moving into permanent conservative control. Um, we are in an absolute crisis mode and we have to resist. And that was at the beginning, a smaller camp of people. Right. Um, I remember, you know, a lot of a lot of the conversation immediately after was kind of like, how do we understand Trump voters and how do we reach out? And, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I can guarantee you that is not how conservatives reacted in 2008. Right. They started right. organizing immediately. And that was where we were. Right. And so that then, I think, was the spark for the indivisible guide. But kind of talk about the process of how that occurred to you to write the guide yeah so we um we were getting uh, progressively more annoying on on facebook posting <laughs> our feelings about the national mood and i remember there were two events which we talk a little bit about in the book within 24 hours of each other one was a future trump appointee was speaking positively about the japanese internment camps uh citing them at the japanese internment camps during world war ii citing them as an example of what to do with muslims refugees uh, immigrant mm-hmm. populations and then within 24 hours there was a a piece in the new york times it was an interview with incoming minority leader Chuck Schumer on the Democratic side, who was uh, kind of representing that that first camp of people that Leah was mentioning. He was saying, well, we lost the election. We're going to have to figure out how to cut deals. Infrastructure seems like a likely thing we could work together on. And it was terrifying because yeah. we were looking forward to 2017, where a potential bipartisan future was one in which the the roads to America's new internment camps were well paved. That That's what the parties could agree on. And so we we uh, from that moment forward, we're really digging in on this idea that, no, in fact, it is possible to say no. We've seen that it is possible to organize and push back against this administration and this Congress. You have the ability to do that. And we knew that because we had seen it used against us when we right. were on Capitol Hill uh, during the early Obama era when the Tea Party was starting to build up. We saw these folks in funny little tricorner hats come out to congressional district offices and try to change what was politically possible. And we disagreed with them. We disagreed with some of their violence and their racism, but we saw them have impact. And yeah. we thought, look, People need to rise up to resist this. The mm-hmm. answer to this is not, let's get along, let's go along. The answer is, let's resist. 
And so this comes to you as your, I believe, home for Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're meeting with a friend at a bar. Yeah. Uh, at that point, the only resistance really collectively was happening on Facebook. Yes. Uh, yeah. And so was that the social media aspect? How did that all play into it? That was part of the inspiration, actually. Yeah. So we were meeting with a friend. Her name's Sarah. She's actually now very heavily involved with Indivisible Austin as a leader there. And she was talking about how she was managing a Facebook group called Dumbledore's Army, which was a group for people in the Austin area who were dedicated to resisting Trump and how they were, you know, like all looking for what they could do to be effective and Mm -hmm. how she and other moderators were kind of just trying to figure out like how to keep feeding them things to do and how to keep them engaged. And that was actually the moment when the light bulb really went off for us that we knew what to do. We knew how to we knew how to actually channel the outrage that was happening around the country into a series of active uh, actions that could make a difference. Well, so how long did the guide actually take to, to write? Did it just flow <laughs> right out of you? So yeah. we, we, had, um, we had drinks with Sarah, I believe, on Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Um, and then when we were talking with her, the, you know, the lightning, bolt, uh, the lightning bolt just struck, right? Um, and we said, oh, well, let's write this guide. And by Sunday night, uh, so after Thanksgiving, we sent out to a handful of congressional staffers who were friends with or other friends in the D.C. space something called the Indivisible Guide and said, hey, what do you think about this? Yeah. So by that time, so it took a, a few days to, to do a first draft. And I'd say by that time, maybe it was 70 or 80 percent done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just kept on working on it for the next few weeks, getting comments, um, getting ideas. We had one former member of Congress who actually did uh, take a look at it and provide some yes. comments mm-hmm. um, who used to work for. Yeah, yeah Tom um, Periello did review oh, you did. early draft. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, so then, of course, we know that it, it blew up, but was there a specific tipping point that you remember where it just really took off? Oh, the flashpoint was definitely uh, the Rachel Maddow show I was going to say, early yeah. January. <laughs> Although I will say, so that, that made it take off, but literally the night that we tweeted it out, the Google Doc crashed. The night that we t- uh, uh, tweeted it out. The next day, um, Charles Bethea from The New Yorker got in touch with us, had an interview, and there was a piece in The New Yorker within, I don't know, 12 hours of that. So it, it went viral, actually, immediately. But then when Rachel Maddow covered it, yeah, it um, it took it to a different level. Yeah, Rachel Maddow actually did a piece uh, with our friend Yvonne Wallace-Fuentes yes. mm-hmm. uh, taking an action against uh, Bob uh, Goodlatte, yeah. uh, as, yeah. as he likes to refer to him. Yeah. And then that was featured on the Rachel Maddow show. And yeah. I will tell you anecdotally that virtually every leader that I have talked to in Washington has yes. their origin story goes, yes. well, I was really depressed after the election. And then I heard about this thing called the Indivisible Guide on Rachel Maddow. And then I started a group. Yep, so, that's right. So, I mean, when did you guys know that this had struck a nerve? And, and why do you, actually, more importantly, why do you think it struck a nerve? Well, we knew almost immediately because, you know, when you put your thoughts on politics on the Internet out, you don't really expect any response at all. And literally within hours, we were getting just emotional, powerful responses yeah. from all over the country. And so we were, you know, we, we realized we tapped into something very quickly. Um, and I think the reason that it struck the nerve that it struck was because it was fundamentally a moment when a lot of people felt powerless and the guide was dedicated to talking to them about the fact that they had power and that they could use it effectively in this moment. Um so much of the way that we, uh, so much of hope is so directly connected to power. And so it was just about making that link again. Hope is directly connected to power. I love that. Can you expand on that? Sure. Um, Well, so I think that the ability to change your circumstances is so fundamentally about, you know, like what power do you have and how can you deploy it? And then um, knowing that you actually have the ability to change your circumstances is so directly connected to the, the hope that something might actually get better. Yeah. I remember when we sent out the the Google Doc to a handful of people, um, there was 
there were a range of responses before we actually sent sent it out um, to the full public before we tweeted it out. And some of the responses were, "Gosh, this is really dark. Shouldn't we be mm. figuring out how to make deals? Like, can't we like paint things in a brighter light? Um, is there some way for us to like look forward to the future? Like, that could be instead of talking about how bad things are." And our response to that was, "You know, things actually are really dark right now." Right. Um, mm-hmm. And we were not writing a guide to reassure people that things were going to be okay just because things were always okay. We were, to Leah's point, writing the guide to tell people they had power. And yeah. so the interesting thing that came to us immediately after we wrote the guide were all of these emails and and tweets and and other forms of communication directed at saying oh my gosh i was in despair and now i have hope so that like to leah's point there was this direct connection between us saying not just do this thing but you have power if you pursue mm. this strategy and people then feeling reassured and then the proof was in the pudding That's we right. see what happened exactly after people started doing that yeah and that really links up in basically the central thesis of the book which is uh people power yeah yes. you're, that's you're, right really trying to drive that point home and I and I should just mention right off the bat the book is fantastic oh, thank uh, you. it is it's funny it's 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 really informative it goes deep on so many subjects and uh, you know <laughs> I can imagine that writing a book with somebody that you're not married to <laughs> would be challenging. Uh, how did you negotiate that process? <laughs> well, um, we tried to take turns first, and then at some point we realized that actually we needed to both be on it together in order to get the product that we wanted. So the way that it worked originally was Ezra wrote a draft. Um, I came Leah in. threw it all out. I threw, I, I threw a lot of it out. Um, well, that's that's always how we've edited, how that we is, work that's together. How, that's how everything's um, gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ezra, our, our twin styles of writing is that Ezra generates a ton of content, and then I cut, you know, 75% of it, and then he's like, oh, you killed my babies, and yep. like, you know. And that's how it goes. Um, that's, that's what editors goes. do. There, there, yeah, was exactly. a, there was a 10-page diatribe on why uh, online petitions are red herring, and Leah just cut that down to about oh, a paragraph. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, well, it was, it was very succinct. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Was. But I mean, it comes across as one voice, yeah. and uh, I noticed that you guys have some uh, some funny uh, score settling in the yes. footnotes. <laughs> I I love yes, it. yes, yeah. that's a product of the last week before we sort of sent the of the full draft in. The two of us literally just went through the book together, page by page, and we were sort of like. Can we both? Do we both feel good about what's on this page? Do we both feel good about what's on this page? If not, if we got if we got anything we don't feel good about, let's put it in the footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> and the, yeah, and I, I actually recommend in in some situations. I'm like, I don't recommend reading the footnotes in this instance. Absolutely, you guys read the footnotes. They're they're fantastic. Um, and we so we did. And this is a whole debate about with the publisher about how best to do it because it yeah. is there are maybe 300 or 400 in notes too. And originally we were citing in the footnotes, but I find that to be kind of boring when you're reading a book to have a footnote citing a certain like a book or an article or something so we stuck all of those in the end notes and have the footnotes just stay somewhat conversational yeah so the first section is what we're up against yep. the second is how we win uh, and that is drawing on uh, everything that has happened uh, since the founding with victories and losses yes and you know the losses are really quite instructive yep. in, in a very surprising way you talk about we talk about DACA yeah. uh, you also talk about the defeat over the GOP tax cuts yes. talk about why that was instructive yeah. Well, the tax cut was a really important political fight, not because, uh, un- un- unlike the ACA, we were not able to actually break the Republicans' uh, unity and stop them from passing a major tax cut, but because it really reinforces sort of this revolving um, relationship between advocacy and electoral work, right? Um, so the GOP was trying to pass a major tax cut because that's the fundamental thing that Republicans can agree on in any situation is always giving more money to rich people. Um, they were also trying <laughs> that's to... That's what they do. Yeah. Exactly. That's their thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
Um, they were also trying to produce a talking point for the twenty twenty ele- or the twenty eighteen election, which was you know we've given you a tax cut, and so the fight over the tax cut was about the narrative that would come out of that, and that had. Um, ideally, it would have stopped them from actually passing it. But barring that, it also helped to set the stage for a 2018 where Republicans couldn't actually run on um, claiming to have done anything for the American people. Yeah, and so- exactly. And in fact, you bring up the instance of Connor Lamb mm-hmm. running in the special special election in, in Pennsylvania. Um, and the GOP wound up pulling some of those ads that they were running in favor of the tax cuts. That's right. right. That that was incredible. I mean, never in the in modern American political history has a massive tax cut become a political liability for the party that passed it. But that's what happened with the tax bill, and it didn't happen automatically. The Republicans, to Leah's point, had planned for this to be a talking point, had planned this to drive forward into the Connor Lamb special election and into the 2018 election saying, hey, we cut your taxes, vote for us. But instead, because of the fight that was waged on the ground, because of how much there were people showing up... Uh, dressed like the Monopoly Manor with big giant checks to the top 1%. Uh, we tell the story of what happened here in Seattle. There were people showing up to push back against this and make clear that, hey, maybe you heard about this tax cut, but actually it's not a tax cut for you. It's a tax cut for your boss and for your corporation, but not for you. And that that made this a liability. That made it a liability for them. Um, so I think that does show the power of fighting back. Even if you don't win, there are knock-on effects that are positive, and we saw that with the tax bill. I wonder how you guys feel this might link up with the fight on impeachment, specifically yeah. oh, getting senators, great connection, yeah. senators to to get on record because the conventional wisdom is at this point, and we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Nobody has a crystal yes. ball, but the conventional wisdom at this point says that uh, senators are going to vote to acquit, and we need to get them on the record. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. gosh, you, that what a great question. I think you're the first one to make that link, and anybody we've talked to. Oh, well, thank <laughs> you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a very similar situation where fundamentally this is about what narrative are we heading into with 2020? Have Republic Republican senators um, been forced to either stand very publicly with Donald Trump or been forced to dissociate themselves. And either way, what is the political price that they're going to pay? Right. And fundamentally, there are a lot of Republican senators in states where Donald Trump is underwater right now who do not want to take that vote because they do not want to put themselves on the record one way or the other. Yeah, I think we could uh, we could list them by name. I think there are about Indeed. four or five of them. Yeah. Even, even more, actually. It's some places where you wouldn't expect. Now, everybody knows in Colorado, Maine, and Arizona, Trump is underwater. These are senators that we could possibly flip to be blue senators in 2020, but he's underwater in Montana. He's yeah. underwater in Iowa, in North Carolina. He's roughly even in Alaska. So 2020 is going to be a referendum on Trump, and we are now going to put all of these senators on the record, whether they vote to acquit him and so make much of their constituency angry that they're voting to acquit this man who clearly committed crimes, right. or they vote to convict, and that's going to make it tougher for them to get their base out. So I think Impeachment is the right thing to do because this president has committed impeachable crimes. It's also the politically smart thing to do for exactly this reason. It work on taxes. It'll work here. The, the losses are instructive, as I say, but the wins that you mention are also really awesome. Uh, we know those, uh, saving the ACA, mm-hmm. of course, and then the blue wave, which was connected to, as we say, the, the tax cuts. And also, I should give a, I would be remiss if I did not give a shout out to my home group, Indivisible Washington's 8th District, and to our incredible leader, Chris Petzold, who gets yes. a, a section and a shout out in the Indeed. book in getting their congressman to retire. And... Um, <laughs> I was actually going to just have you guys tell this story, but my mom is here, and she was one of the people who, <laughs> I, I'm completely imposing on you, but it just occurs to me, do you, do you want to tell this story? You don't have to. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, come on over. 
well, I'm not sure how to tell this, there were a handful of us who showed up one morning at the clinic where he was being honored for something. And he had been refusing to face us. He wouldn't see us. And, in fact, they would call the police when we would be on their property and kick us off public property. And so this was the first time that he had come into contact with our signs. But (laughs) when they drove in, his handler saw us standing in front of the clinic and they pulled out, and they drove around the block for about 10 minutes looking for another entrance, and there wasn't one. So he realized he was going to have to come in front of our signs, and we were really peaceful, and we were really respectful, but he walked by us, and one of the women had a sign that said, you do not have the right to be silent. And he said, your sign is wrong. (laughs) I think that's the way he said it, and he grumbled, and he walked on by, and then when he came out, he realized he had to walk by us again, and he was not happy, so that was the first time that he had come in contact with Washington 8, and and he resigned about three days later, so we don't know if that had any effect, but we like to think it did. Oh, it absolutely did, because y'all aren't the only ones uh, that saw that impact, so you know, after February 2017, after those initial town halls where there were indivisible groups and others showing up all over the country, what we noticed is that many members of Congress, especially Republican members of Congress, stopped showing up at town halls. They started hiding, just like Reichert. And what indivisible groups started doing were these empty chair town halls, like they did here in Seattle, like they did in, I remember in Michigan 11th, uh, where Dave Trott was, we tell this story, the indivisible group there brought a live chicken on stage to represent the uh, the <laughs> congressman. He also decided to not run for re-election. There was this raft of Republicans announcing their retirements because they were seeing the energy here in Seattle and elsewhere, and they didn't want to go up against that. They didn't want to lose. So part of the blue wave was, yes, on election night 2018, winning these contested seats. A big part of it happened a year plus before when a lot of Republicans looked at the lay of the land and said, "Ah, I don't want to be in that. And they decided to retire. You know, I was just going to I want to get your opinion on that very thing, because we're seeing a lot of retirements now. But what we're seeing now are a lot of people who may find the fact that they are not with the Trump agenda pulling away. Mm -hmm. Does that indicate a further cleavage between the parties? And are we troubled by that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's become increasingly clear over the last couple of years that the Republican Party really fundamentally belongs to Trump. The only people who are uh, real profiles encourager, and that's I use that term (laughs) with a lot of sarcasm, the only people who actually are willing to take a public stance against him consistently are generally on their way to retirement. Um, We do not see people who are seeking re-election who are actually consistently even speaking out against him, let alone holding him accountable. And the reason that I say the profiles encourage with quotation marks is because even the folks who are, uh, you know, ready to give a, a juicy quote to a reporter attacking Trump are generally not actually willing to take action that would constrain him. Yes. And then we see some who are not willing to take any action at all, who are avoiding uh, questions on their exactly. way to the vote underneath the, uh, the in the halls of the, exactly. the Capitol. And so the number one action of most Senate Republicans is to stick their fingers in their ears and close their eyes. Yeah. Well, this book is about really uh, using people power to push back against that and to, yep. to get them to listen. Um, the third section of the book lays out all the reforms, the, the blueprint, right. um, uh, much of which you and I have, have actually talked about on yep. previous shows, uh, democratizing the Senate by granting statehood to D.C. and then Puerto Rico and uh, other territories if they want that, right. uh, expanding the House, um, expanding the Supreme Court, voting reform, media reform, near and dear to my heart, yep. and this all starts with ending the filibuster, which yep. we have discussed 
discussed. Uh, and I, I don't think we need to revisit that because I think it's very, very clear. Uh, and all of this, because of ending the filibuster, can be done legislatively yep. without amending the Constitution, right? You make a point of that in the book. And that's really crucial for us. So we are in favor of many possible constitutional amendments. I would love a constitutional amendment to uh, reverse Citizens United and permanently get big money out of politics. I would like a constitutional amendment to eliminate the Electoral College. Uh, but we need to recognize our House, our Democratic House, is on fire right now. And so we will have, if we do everything right, if we build this power the way we advise that we build it, we will have a pro-democracy House, a pro-democracy Senate, a pro-democracy president in 15 months. And that means we will have a limited window of opportunity in 2021 to actually entrench people power, to significantly expand the vote, to make D.C. and other territories a state if they want to provide for election security, to help out with small dollar donors, to invest in media, all these things that you talked about. All of that is possible now. And so what we're focusing on in the book is what is the day one democracy agenda that we can get done? After that, by all means, let's build towards bigger sure. things. We should. We absolutely should. But we need to know what can get done right now as a baseline, and then we can move on to bigger stuff. I mean, we really know what the stakes are. Uh, I don't think I need to rehearse those for anybody. We need to win in 2020. And as yes. you say, the future of our democracy really depends on that. Um, so we are almost exactly one year out from the 2020 election. That's what right. would you guys like to see Indivisibles doing between now and then? Oh, goodness. Every, yeah. So many things. <laughs> <laughs> well, so fundamentally, um, we've got a few different stages before we get to the 2020 election, right? Um, so right now we are in the midst of a battle to define the narrative on impeachment. And it is going to be absolutely critical that Democrats prevail with a clear under, a clear narrative coming out of the House process about the crimes that have been committed. How would you like that narrative to go? I'd like that narrative to look something like, look, it's very complicated and there are lots of, you know, there's lots of different facts flying around on different testimony and specifics, but we all know this basic truth, which is he did it, he confessed, and now we're just finding out how deep it goes and who was involved. Yeah. Um, and so Democrats need to come out of the House trial with a very clear sense that he is guilty. Um, and then we need to move into the Senate and we need to win the public ba relations battle over the Senate trial, which will be structured by Mitch McConnell to be as much of a uh, as much of a, an acquittal as possible. Right. Um, we also need to engage in the presidential primary. Right. Um, because fundamentally, there are some candidates who are in the presidential primary right now who are actually on board to make democracy a, a central priority, who really do see this as a series of structural problems where we have to reshape the system if we're not if we're going to break out of this cycle where Republicans get power and they change the rules to stay in power. Um, and that means actually supporting can and coming out for the candidates who are really prepared to advance that agenda. Um, we also need to be 100% clear that we are going to be unified behind whoever wins the Democratic here, here. primary. Yeah, and that is right. why we are already registering unity events for the weekend after uh, the DNC convention in July. Um, as part of the Indivisible Pledge, as part of the work that we're doing, we're, we're ready to make sure that there is a broad narrative of grassroots support for the ultimate nominee, whoever that is, because... If, you know, that can of seltzer water over there becomes the Democratic presidential nominee, we're then we're on team. It. Yep, we're going to T-shirts and say can of seltzer water. Um, 2020. 2020. Yeah. I, I don't Knock know what the, what's not LaCroix. Yeah, it's more of a generic kind of thing, but I'm sure we can come up with some sort of catchy yeah. slogan. Yeah. Um, as we know, there has mm -hmm. been a lot of concern and hand-wringing um, about the primaries, understandably, yeah. because yep. we know mm -hmm. that the yep. stakes are so high. I, I actually would love for you to read what you wrote about electability verbatim, but I'll just instead <laughs> ask you to summarize 
What do you think about selecting a candidate based on electability? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the concept of electability is just um, a really poorly understood concept, and yet it has a big impact on people's political decision making and a lot of the national discussion. Usually electability is meant to mean somebody who is a moderate, white, wealthy male who can raise a whole bunch of money for their campaign. And it's used in a way to discredit other candidates, whether candidates of color or for low-income right. backgrounds or women, um, and say, well, they can't. It's not me. It's not that I don't want a candidate of color. It's not that I don't want uh, a woman to be president or senator or representative. It's just that, you know, other people, some mythical other person is going to have a problem with that. And we just, we we think that you're not an expert in what a mythical other person is going to think. You as an individual are an expert in who inspires you. And so the right way to engage in this process is to say, well, whose policies do I like? Who is inspiring me? Because if they're inspiring you, there's a good chance they're going to inspire other people. And what we've seen throughout American history, recent American history, is the term electability is often used to pick people who ultimately turn out not to be electable. Mm, we see that is the John, irony. Yeah. John Kerry was the most electable candidate to take on George W. Bush. Right. We have uh, in 88, we needed to take down this other uh, president, uh, uh, Republican president, and the decision was to go with this Massachusetts moderate who we thought we were going to be able to take, and then he lost. So I think I think it is important to look at not just who some talking heads think is going to be the quote-unquote most electable, but who who is inspiring you. And then yeah. maybe they will win the primary, or maybe they won't. But at the end of the day, if you get behind who inspires you and a whole bunch of other people get behind who inspires them, we're going to get end up with somebody who is inspiring and they're going to yeah. be better at winning in the general and we've entered i'd say the period of time when everyone's got a poll that supports whatever yeah. they already thought sure. on this yeah. um and you know and that's just a normal part of the election cycle what i would say is just you're not an expert on what motivates a voter in a state you've never been to you're an expert on whether you find a candidate authentic and inspiring and they make you excited and you should you should listen to that voice inside your head that tells you that that candidate is who you want to get for it behind and as you say in the book, vote in the primary with your heart, vote in the general with your head. That's right. So, mm -hmm. And that's that's exactly. a key part of the Indivisible Pledge. We, uh, anytime Indivisible uh, endorses in a, in a primary, we do not endorse the candidate unless they agree to rally around the winner. Because at the end of the day, every single one of these Democratic presidential candidates is Abraham Lincoln compared to Donald Trump. <laughs> it is an easy choice. Yeah. Um, now, that's not to say the primary is important. It is. But at the end of the day, yes, we will all be voting our head in 2020. Of course. Yeah. yeah. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. <laughs> so, no and so just one other thing about uh, the book. I know that you are donating a certain portion of the proceeds. Is that right? Yeah. The certain portion is 100%. Um, oh, well. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, it, you know, it's noteworthy about the book. So Lee and I wrote this book. Um, it is not a book about us. It is not a book for us. Our names actually literally aren't on the cover, and that's intentional. Um, we think this is a book that should be for and about the movement. It's about growing the movement. It's about making sure that people understand the stakes that um, uh, we're facing in 2020 and that we're building towards 2021 to demand these reforms. So 100% of the author proceeds, including the advance in any royalties, goes to Indivisible Safe Democracy Fund. Lee and I don't get a dime from it. Well, what you have built is extraordinary. Uh, once again, the book is informative and incredibly readable. I cannot recommend it enough. And on behalf of everybody here in Washington State who listens to this show, I just want to say thank you to both of you for all that you have built and and really fostered. Uh, you've, you've, you've created a lot of hope. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you for building this with us. Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin are co-executive directors and founders of Indivisible.
And before we go, I will note that while they were here in Washington, Leah and Ezra also appeared at a live event with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. I have the full audio of that for you, and we'll be releasing that as a standalone show on Friday, so stay tuned for that. And that is it for this week's show. If you missed anything, if you want to catch up on past shows, if you would like a link to where you can buy the book, you can find all of that and more at indivisiblepodcast.org, and you can subscribe to the show there, too. If you want to get in touch, the email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guests, Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>